0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Dr. Joanne Lee, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. July 2021, Dr. Joanne Lee was appointed the 16th Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. She is the first woman of color to serve as UNO Chancellor and the first Asian American in the history of the University of Nebraska system to hold an executive leadership role. Originally from Hong Kong, Dr. Lee is a first-generation college student, earning bachelor's and doctoral degrees in finance from Florida State University, and is a chartered financial analyst. Dr. Lee most recently served as Dean of the College of Business at Florida International University, the nation's fourth largest public university, and served at other universities prior to that. She brings to UNO 15 years of progressive leadership experience in higher education, with a demonstrated record in improving student outcomes, growing enrollment and programs, enhancing diversity and inclusion, fundraising, and building community partnerships. Dr. Lee, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, to it. Happy to be here.
0: At your investiture as UNO Chancellor, um, Nebraska University President Ted Carter described you as a true maverick. And so I wanted to ask, just to get us going, what does that mean in real terms? How do you interpret uh, what that means?
1: I actually think of a true maverick as a risk taker, right? It's an entrepreneur. It's a pioneer. It's someone that is willing to take some risk to get to that destination. And maverick to me means that, hey, I know there are obstacles, but I'm not going to shy away from it. And I'm going to take some risk. I'm going to get to that destination with determination, discipline.
0: I'm going to guess that that spirit has been a feature of your life but to test that out, I'm going to start by asking, what was your early life like? What was your childhood like?
1: Well, my parents actually ran away from coming to China when they were a teenager. My mother was probably 12 years old, and they actually both from a pretty well off family. But of course, coming to Hong Kong, being a teenager on your own, didn't really have, you know, you lost everything, right? When the communism came in and had a really tough life, of course, you know, met as a teenager, fell in love, had five kids, never really had formal education. And then later on became entrepreneur, owned a textile factory. So growing up, I was actually poor, but, you know, when you are a kid, you didn't know that, right? It's like, you know, you eat, you eat, you dress, you dress, you, but, you know, they're, looking back when I grow up, I was like, wait, we were actually poor. And um, the big part about me is, you know, I don't, I never really say this to a lot of people but I'm gonna tell you this to it. I think one year I went to Europe with my sister with the limited saving that I had, and uh, we joined a tour. And then I said, wait a minute, the world is a lot bigger than what I thought it would be. And there's a saying in Chinese, they said, if I am gonna be a frog at the bottom of a well, let me pick a bigger well, right? So I think at that young self, I had that opportunity and recognized that the world is a lot bigger and I cannot be contained by a small well. I need to go see the world. I need to do something that I will will feel like I'm, I'm worth living for. So coming to United States is a very big turning point in my life that I was able to get educated I was able to meet a lot of mentors. Being a first-generation college student, I have substantial financial challenges, right? But I was very lucky. I got scholarship, and and I find this country interesting. You know, you study, you make good grades. Someone that not related to you were willing to pay for your tuition said, that's not real, right? That is real. So I, I, I tell people every time when, you know, now that I'm a U.S. citizen, right, get educated, undergraduate PhD, but every time when I see an American flag raised and the national anthems being sung, I got emotional because it means a lot more to me as someone completely humbled through my early childhood and have an opportunity to get educated and have an opportunity to give it back. It's it's tremendous amount of joy and pride. So, yeah, that's pretty much a, a, a story in a condensed manner.
0: You've touched on something that I I did want to talk about, which is uh, through the grilling you probably had before you were appointed to this position, and certainly from your very extensive and accomplished track record, it's pretty clear that one area that's of central focus for you is about students and student outcomes. You are a first-generation college student, and I don't want to underestimate how difficult it is people when they're young to make that leap into being the first person in their family to be a a college student. And so I'm I'm just wondering, what was that like for you? How, how did you manage to, as it were, make that big leap into becoming a a college student?
1: Well, that's a a really good question. Um, I, um, you go home, you don't really have anyone to talk to, you know, selecting classes. What is that? Nobody knows, you know, and also you speak a different language coming here and, I want to tell you a story about one of my mom that shared with me. Now he's very successful and everything. He's like, well, uh, I'm a first generation college student. And that day I was supposed to interview with one of the, you know, big five or big four accounting firm. I pick a car that my brother's car has more gas halfway through the, the distance. One of the tire just came off and I really needed this job. This is my final interview. So without thinking, I just took one of the luck nuts out of the other three tires, and put that tires back on and continue my journey. And I asked him, is that dangerous? He said, absolutely. And he said, when I get to the interview, I was perspiring so badly, and I am a person that talked with my hands, but my hands were dirty. I was really nervous. I hit my hands, and I went on. I top it out. This is a journey of a first-generation college student. This is only an um, analogy to tell you. There's so many obstacles in front of us that I can't even share with people. Many people cannot relate, but I can. I understand that. So I asked him, did you get the job? Yes, I did. That is also one of the determined first-generation college students. Sometimes I, I hear stories like that. I, I think of my journey is actually easier because I make good grades. I'm, I'm not going to downplay the challenges that I face. In the third year, I actually volunteered in an inner-city a school that I taught about 90 uh, kindergarten to second grader. At that such a young age, they're already being classified as at-risk students because their parents have drug issues, behavioral problems, absentees, abuse, and everything. And I got into the school around 2.30. And the first thing I did is to eat a snack with them and maybe a carton of milk, some cheese, some crackers. That would be the first meal for many of my students. And so, Stuart, I have to tell you, so student to me, it's never a number. The student to me is kind of like a family. It's like my kid. It's like myself going through the same experience again. And sometimes they can't even tell you. The words cannot express how emotional it could be that day I have to travel so many distance, take a bus, you know, try to gather whatever money to come to class and settle down and try to learn. It's not an easy task. So I think. Um, yes, I love the students because I feel like now I have an opportunity to make someone you know travel a different journey, have a different outcome, to increase their mobility, you know social and economically. It's a great joy to my life. And of course as a finance professor, there are opportunity in life that you can choose from. But high ed remain as the number one choice for that particular reason. I see myself among my students. I understand.
0: I don't want to get too much into the weeds about you know the future of higher education, but, but I do think it's worth asking. Graduation rates for four-year college degrees, they could be better, let's put it that way. And student enrollment, whether it's because of the pandemic or other factors, is in some ways in decline in institutions of higher learning. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around the student experience and how you were thinking you want to improve that at UNO.
1: So the past two years created tremendous challenges for high ed. It challenged the way we run things. It challenged the way we deliver our courses. It challenged the way that we design our curriculum. It even challenged the way, you know, in terms of pedagogy, modality, are we learner-centric? But every challenge comes with an opportunity. I think the last two years open up a big window for high ed and administrative faculty and staff alike to look at and say, wait a minute, there are areas that we can do better. We can be a lot smarter. And we also have to understand what are the factors that can make high ed continue to stay relevant, right? I always say that to a lot of people, high ed is and will be defined by urbanization, right? I know that a lot of people argue, well, you know, uh, a lot of people move out from the city and go to suburb. But understand that economic prosperity builds on people, right? And let me explain to you, right? Omaha in 2024, according to the census survey, it will be projected to be 1 million people. Do not underestimate the number, right? And society, economic prosperity, all build on people. So what we need to do at UNO as an urban university has a very distinctive core, to think about, wait a minute. What is our mission as an urban university, right? Uh, it's actually to be strongly participate in workforce development, and workforce development count on you are going to have a strategy to be people centric, because if you do a strategy that is people centric, you can sustain economic vibrancy. That's very important. Now you ask, well, what are you going to do in terms of improving student performance? There are four things very fundamental, right? And for UNO, it has to be in this order. It may not be in in that order for other institutions, but for UNO, it has to be in that order. Completion of degree, right? It's all nonsense. If we say, well, you know, we recruit students, they come in and take our classes. The next thing you know, they drop out. The next thing you know, they will take eight years, right? So the first thing you know is completion degree. How do you close the deal? The goal is if they sign up, you want them to finish with the degree. The second thing that is important is try to optimize the time to graduation. Now, I understand a lot of people, like some of my colleagues was like, well, do you mean four years? One side doesn't fit all. Oh, I'm nervous about you thinking about it because our students will have like a lot of work-life balance if they work full time. I say I get it. I didn't say four years. I say, let's optimize the time to degree, meaning that if a student can really graduate in four years, help them. What does it mean? you got to be very innovative to think about there is no overlapping and, and all the courses they needed, it's just exactly the courses they need to take. You have advisor to hold their hand. You have career counselor to tell them these, the courses will be more relevant. You have to understand hey, some of the courses that if we have a high failing rate, what happened? What can we do to provide more remedial help? Can we change the curriculum, making sure that we still teach student learning is happening, but the failing rate is actually you know um, uh, shrinking? These are very important topic to talk to, right? It requires not only me and administration, but also our colleagues in the faculty senate, our faculty, our staff, to think innovatively. Do not believe we're disjointed because every single action we take are all correlated to the success of the student. And hence, in this case, it's time to degree. The third thing is important is retention. And I always say that, right? If you're wonderful recruiting people, but you can't even have a high retention rate the first year, which is very critical, that all effort will go to waste. So retention has to be very strategic. That will mean pay attention to your student, build a sense of belonging, Checking in with them like their family. Don't check in with them because they are one of my, you know, number. No, you really understand and, and you have to do a lot of parenting, right? Particularly for institutions like us. Big portion of our students are first gen. Big portion of our students are Pell Grant. Big portion of them are Nebraska Primus. One in two students need some financial help. You've to listen to them. What is bothering you, right? The retention rate is very crucial to get to the first one and this, the first goal and the second goal. And the last one is strategic recruitment, right? As an urban university, the goal is inclusive. We want to be excellent by inclusion, not exclusion. And I try to explain to people in economic sense, right? If you think about there's a tightening labor workforce, shrinking in labor market supply. So we have to find way to build incremental increase in labor workforce you're going to look. You can look at area that traditionally won't be a four-year degree graduate. You want to look into area that, oh, we can we retrain the current labor workforce? So we have to be innovative to think. Math only happened that way if you can provide incremental increase. So these are four things I think all must focus on and will do well on. And that will require a very important mindset shift to understand how to create connectivity, from every single academic college to functional area, to behave like one team, to create enterprise solution, to share information freely and frequently, right? So because um, growing a kid, right, fostering a kid is not a one person's job. It takes a whole village, a whole university. So one of the things that I, you and all, going forward, will really focus on, can we be that one university? that can have a high level of connectivity to make the journey for the student, it's tra- well-traveled, and yet they complete this journey and place them gainfully employed.
0: You're both my best life, yeah. You're best life, Something you will oh. You're best life, yeah. Jumping, flexing, I know I just want something Something you and me, oh You both got some of my best life, yeah In someone's lifetime, it's estimated that perhaps there'll be a difference of, say, a million dollars over a lifetime to their household income if they have a degree compared to if they do not have a degree. And as I say, that's backward-looking data. Um, And and of course, uh, you have a doctorate in finance, so I'm sure you know this much better than I. Um, How is a case made nonetheless to someone who's 18, perhaps to their parents, that the future for having a a higher form of education is worth the debt that they will incur. So basically what I'm saying is, is the degree worth the bang for the buck?
1: Right. So we discussed a little bit earlier on how an urban university can succeed, right? The landscape of high ed is changing and the direction is people asking and continue to ask that kind of question, and rightfully so right? Is the degree really worth it, right? I'm going to pay that much money to get this degree that I cannot get a job, right? So understanding high ed going forward will have to be a lot more understanding of household income. United States um, tuition really can completely hit the roof. Right? I have a kid going to college right now. Mm-hmm. So for UNO, our tuition it's very affordable, right? That makes you know a natural choice for that regard. And not only because of the price, it's probably around 7,000 a whole year full-time undergraduate. Maybe you add fees and everything about 10 grand. 10 grand is still a lot of money. But in there, and I will say that in here, that you have to understand as a university, how can you make smart choices we in business term, right, bring a lean operation, right? I subtle a challenge higher to ask, do we need this shiny penny building somewhere out there? Because long gone are the model, like, wow, I have a lot more buildings than your campus, team will come in and have a huge dining hall and all that kind of thing. I think the past two years challenge us to think that way, right? And then also remember, we'll go back and talk about how you create an incremental workforce it's really like Austin body, right? First-gen college student, and student traditionally will not have that. And you're absolutely correct. If you have a four-year degree, your earning potential is a lot higher than someone that just graduated from a high school diploma. I'm not downplaying that high school diploma, GED. It's great because the society needs different kinds kind of workers, right? And many of my siblings, you know, never been to college. So I understand that. But I, I want to make sure that we emphasize High ed, it's provide an environment for someone to excel and also find out who you are. It's, it's, it's the degree, sure, but also there's opportunity that in UNO, it's, you don't really need to go for four-year. We're creating micro credentialing. We're creating opportunity for, for candidates that come. Hey, I am still want to sit on the bench and see how it goes. I want to take some courses and learn how it goes. So, But for those students... That in the past, like myself, right? Nobody in my family ever get a four-year degree. Like, should I do it? You should really open your mind and come and understand to get a four-year degree. It's great you get a four-year degree, but it's actually an opportunity to grow who you are. The experience of learning who you are, the discovery, right? The, The opportunity to meet different kind of people, interact with your your professor slash researcher, actually open up a lot more opportunity to open up your mind to believe, oh, wait a minute, I can do this. Like for me, I never thought, I have no idea what a PhD was. What did a PhD do, right? When I was undergraduate by the third year, my chair asked me, well, I think you should go to a PhD seminar. I was like, what? I'm a third year student. What is a PhD? We think you're ready. You should go and just kind of sit with them. But coming into an environment in a four-year high education, it should open up a lot more uh, opportunity for students like myself, right? To figure out maybe intellectually, I can pursue this, but I never knew that, right? You find a little bit about yourself. So for, for lack of a better term, for institution like us, with a very affordable uh, tuition to create that affordable, a quality education, but we'll also provide that window for you to find out who you are and have an opportunity to interact with people. I am one case here, right? I get a chance to understand, wait a minute, I will find it very interesting if I can learn more about this. So I want to tell parents, it's actually, you would deprive your kids opportunity to find out who they are. It's very hard to go back and tell your kids, don't go to a college because that ain't right. The choice is with them, let them decide it.
0: segue into the word inclusion. I really like how you've really in a full-throated and um, forceful way advocated for a sort of humanities approach in some ways to this personal journey of self-discovery and um, becoming the fullest person that we can be through education. You talked a little bit earlier about that word inclusion and making that an an intrinsic part of um, one body, one campus, one community. And certainly, community is a feature of your bio and your experience with which you've had great success, and and I think you've been recognised for your accomplishments in that regard. Um, I wish I didn't have to say this, but unfortunately, it's also true that today that words like inclusion, diversity, equity, come a little bit loaded with interpretation. When you think about inclusion, what does that mean? for you when you think about the university, when you think about the community at large?
1: Inclusion to me means we include all thoughts, or experiences. I don't automatically translate when people say diversity inclusion means, oh, the color of my complexion, um, the heritage that I have, the food I eat, the clothes I wear. I mean, I, I don't translate right there. And part of it, it's through many years of my career, I participated like, you know, I serve as the president of the Council of Chinese American Deans and, and President. And sometimes there's a preconceived notion about um, Chinese or Asian, they're more reserved, you know, they really have a character, you know, and they're quiet, you know, they, they don't ask a lot, they, they tend to be very mild. And um, I, I think that is actually totally wrong, right? But the world is the world, right? Sometimes people stereotype, I get it, right? And, and we sometimes we joke around, with, right? Stereotype is 87% correct or so. That's how humans learn the way of, you know, scaling our experience, right? But I do believe that, you know, the day that we stop talking about it, that we don't feel like there's a need to talk about it, we've done it. Unfortunately, the day is not here, right? So what does really inclusion means in a community is, wait a minute, let me give an example. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, UNO is not just UNO at the corner of somewhere in Omaha. UNO is part of this community. We are driving some of the forward thinking, you know, initiative going on. But we're also partner going over with Urban Core, right? So diversity and inclusion also means a lot bigger than that. It may mean social, cultural, economic, you know, norms, uh, factors, but it's, it's not just about me and versus you. It's about us thinking together. And I want to create an environment that I believe inclusion is or are welcome. Or welcome implies, hey, I may disagree with you politically. I may even disagree with you some with some fundamental economic policy the country's going on. But yet we can sit here with civility, humility, we can sit here and have a coffee and we can debate. At the end of the debate, we may still come back with, like, I can't agree with you. And be polite about that, because that's all about inclusion, right? Accept the fact that we're all different. We all have our own version of the truth. But don't forget about that respect. Don't forget about the civility. Don't forget about part of being human is to compromise, right? It's okay. It's okay that I don't agree with you. Let's make a compromise. Well, let's have coffee again. And I think that's important for inclusion.
0: I don't envy you your role. You know, a case in point is the race in Nebraska for the governor's office. Already there are people in that race that are highlighting issues of divisiveness, not least in, you know, in our public discourse and also how we manage education specifically. And I think inevitably, because you're a leading figure in our local community, it's sort of impossible for you not to get pulled into that in some way. And I don't know how you're going to navigate some of that public conversation that I think, perhaps, dare I say, isn't necessarily certainly not accurate. It's certainly misleading and not very helpful. Um, but I'm not the one that has to deal with it. <laughs> um, but you might have to. and I, I just wonder how how you think you're going to have to handle that issue.
1: So first and foremost, UNO, University of Nebraska at Omaha, and also Nebraska University System, it's a publicly funded you know, system is a publicly funded university. In the public eye, we have to be neutral because by protecting that neutrality, we promote the exchange of free ideas and speeches. We will have the ability to embrace agreement and disagreement, and that's a very important. And sometimes people will refer it as economic freedom. Right, we must stand firm on the belief that hey, we receive public funding, and in there there will be diverse opinion, and so we have to promote the environment of politics neutral. Now, certainly, Joanne Lee has her private opinion, and certainly under um, closed-door, a safe environment, I can guarantee you, Stuart, I am known for being my big mouth. I'm known for being direct. I'm known for being blunt. Because sometimes I really do believe, right, a good working relationship built on trust. Trust comes from the fact that I honor that by speaking of my mind, right? So that is important to me. Um, I understand and sometimes being a chancellor and a president, it's going to be a highly, you know, politically charged position. And there's a lot of things that in high ed we talk about It's a very difficult job. Sometimes inevitably, Joe Lee is going to make a thousand mistakes, you know, Gonna probably apologize a thousand times. And just like everybody else, I am not perfect. I don't take myself too seriously either. So, but I do understand there's certain things I cannot say, but I do understand there's certain thing that within my right I should, because that is clearly articulate the mission and the vision of an urban university. And uh I like the governor and no issue at all, and we don't have to agree on everything. And uh, there's one thing he said, I agree, right? Of course, there's one thing he said, and I was like, eh, you know, but it's okay. I'm sure he feels the same way and I do respect him. And the second thing is, I, I do believe that we have to bring back civility to high ed. We cannot shy away from difficult conversation. We have to have that kind of conversation. And our job in high ed as leader and student as followers, we must be leading by example to demonstrate our ability to accept different opinions, to demonstrate our ability to be civil, to bring our students in together, agree and disagree. Everyone has the opportunity to voice their opinion. And I am concerned about sometime high ed perceived to be a playground for everybody just say whatever opinion and shut down other people that disagree with them. I'm concerned about that. I am calling for my colleagues in high ed to stand up and say we have a responsibility to educate our next level of leader, our generation of students that come after us. We need to demonstrate what civility really means, what compromise truly means. We're humankind. We're each other natural habitat. We have to continue to live with each other. We can't shut people up just because they disagree with us. That is not the right way. Higher education should be a lot more forward-thinking than that. And our goal to be a great university is to really promote a success for all, not just a particular interested group or interest group that we agree with.
0: It feels to me that part of your job description is to build connections with the community, as well as establishing one within the university itself at UNO. But I actually feel like, I mean, I don't think this is a hidden agenda as such, but it feels to me as if your aspiration for the city, the area at large, is for a more civil, thoughtful, innovative, compassionate, community and that the university under your leadership has a really significant role to play in nurturing that kind of community. Now, maybe I'm enlarging your job role beyond what you want, but it feels that way to me.
1: Mm -hmm. I think um, absolutely. University must take that leadership role in building a community that is full of compassion. And how does it work that way? Because if you look at the natural workforce, it's actually very diverse in Ethnicity is very diverse in experiences. It's very diverse across countries, right? So in order for Omaha and even for the state of Nebraska to be forward-thinking, we have to assimilate an environment to allow our students, our candidates, to get used to it, right? What does it mean in education, in curriculum, in in student experiences, in on-campus activities? We have to provide that kind of experience for them. We have to address for instance, I'm going to give an example, right? Some students love the rap, right? You have to create a concert for the rapper to come. And more so is because the, the quicker, the better we do it, the better and easier for our candidate to join the workforce, which is actually true reflection of the world workforce, that they will succeed, and so I think the city of Omaha is leaning towards that way and try to be very sensitive about creating cultural events and interaction among our different stakeholders. And I think it's a very important step. And I don't I don't want to come out as like, well, really noble. We just want to create a compassionate society. But more so, how can we make our participant happier, right? By creating an environment that truly well, it's, it's fine. I'm going to go in, I will see Indian, I will see Black, I will see white, I will see Indian American, I will see Asian, you know, it's, it's like an everyday event, you know, I'm going to go to a concert, I go to opera, I'm going to go to a rock star show. We have to make the state of Nebraska more competitive in the future economy. And one of the elements to make that happen is to create that kind of workforce component, that means we have to create a city, a state, that will embrace different kind of cultures, right, to provide different kind of experiences for people so that they really feel like, oh, okay, this is home. I'm, I feel comfortable here. So that's important.
0: To ask you about leadership. How did you prepare to become a leader? I wonder if you've always known that you had leadership capacities and attributes, or if you actually had to, as it were, work hard to build yourself to a point where you felt comfortable saying, Yes, I am a leader and I'm going to step out in front.
1: Well, Stuart, thank you for calling me a leader. I'm still a student learning in many ways, but sure, in this position, People would like me to be not as modest and call myself a leader. So um, I I was the talkback kid among all my sisters. My sister always said, how dare you to talk to your parents like that? It's going to be really bad karma for you. So I have always been that talkback kid. And uh, when I was younger, I make a lot of mistakes, open my mouth too often, not even you know, put a, a thoughtful process going on. And I think aging helped, right? Meeting people helped. I... I think by now, you know, I'm actually a very people person. I try to tell my husband I'm actually a trained introvert. He laughed at my face like you're never an introvert. Um, I like people. I get energy out of people, but I am also an intense observer. And a lot of people, including my kindergarten to second grader, I learn from them, right? I I, through my experience um, dealing with people, I kind of like figure out some will work, some will not. How do you talk to people a little bit better that people can take a little bit easier? But 2016 is my turning point in life, right? When I started as a professor, I was like, oh, I made it. I'm a professor now. That's great, you know? Then, and I think early on in my career, um, one of a colleague that is from another university recruited me and wanted me to be the chair. I was like, I'm like the youngest one in my department. What the heck? Could you want me to pass a message to someone else? He said, nope. I just want you. I said, why? He said something that is still going on in my life. And He said, we have seen something in you. we have yet to discover. And this statement stayed with me for the longest time. There's quite a few points in my career that my president would talk to me at the time in Ohio and say that I want you to take time. You need to look up. Don't just look down. I want to send you to ask you the Millennium Leadership Initiative. I said, what is that? I want you to take time. I need you to, to be trained. You will be going to places. I need you to learn. 2016, I was in D.C. for about a whole week. And I studied with probably 30-something president and chancellor, some of them assistant chancellor. Mm-hmm. And ASCU actually had has this initiative started 20-something years ago. Back then, 20-something years ago, a bunch of minority presidents realized high ed will have no future. Mm-hmm. We do not diversify our leadership. So I was being nominated, I was the probably the only Asian woman, Eastern Asian woman, ever gone through the program in 20-something years. And in there, 23 friends, we are called the twenty four protégé of that mm. class. And um, the most impactful woman come from the dinner time. We started at six-something all the way till nine. A president will come and be a keynote. First half of the statement will be, You should never be a president. It's a horrible job, bad choice. The other half, the president usually choked up and say, now I'm going to tell you why you need to be one. And that really changed my whole perspective about life. And uh, after that, I spent two weeks in Harvard learning theories about leadership. I was like, this is killing me. I can't do this. I need practical training. But by the second week in Harvard, I had this epiphany to understand what we study in book all the theory, we can actually practice it. So after 2016, I have become very deliberate to train myself. And following two years, I went to D.C., also participated in some other leadership training. I went to two executive training on leadership with Walton. I spent a lot of time to study other people, learn from them. So leadership journey becoming a more intentional journey Because I feel like there is a tremendous responsibility. When people put you in this position, you need to be very careful to take care of your people. You need to pay a lot of attention. You need to really make things happen for the better good of all those people from within. So early on, it was happenstance. But the reason, you know, I would say eight years, I really spent a lot of time try to make myself a better leader. I learned from a lot of my colleagues, sometimes some of the statements they they share with me still stay with me at this point of my career.
0: You've mentioned this just a little bit. It shouldn't be this way, but acknowledging what you just discussed, is it a greater responsibility? Do you feel a greater burden as a role model? Um, it, It shouldn't be that you have to feel this way, but as Chinese American, a female, in a leadership position, does that carry an extra burden? Do you feel, or an extra maybe opportunity too?
1: So, Stuart, it's actually interesting that you ask this because for many people who know that I'm, I never take myself too seriously. <laughs> so, to say the word burden, it's actually overstatement. I never feel the burden. I don't feel like, oh, okay, well, you know, now that you're a chancellor, you have to act a certain way. Uh, no, I don't feel that way. I mean, uh, well, you have to be a role model for the, all the Asian, you know, people out there. No, I don't feel that way either because i see i always joke around this and i in many ways i'm not joking right every day i wake up if i don't look at the mirror i thought i look like you, you know? i mean, like i don't even think i don't even think much about this right so i never really have that burden in in me right so my husband always say that you just have too much confidence in you i said that could be but part of it is it's i'm still that poor girl right that i grow up poor i mean and I have a calligraphy in my office that reminds me every day, live your life like you're the poorest person on the planet. So every single good blessing come my way, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing a little dance, you know? So I don't feel that at all. But of course, sometime when I go to a meeting and I and I know that I have to deliver a disappointing news, I have to be very mindful to to say things so that it won't deepen the hurt, you know? So I, I put a lot more thought that part of it is because I'm aging, right? I, I, being a mother humbled me tremendously, right? You know, just al- outrageous. You can never tell your kid what to do. But, but at the same time, I become a little bit more careful about my words. But I never feel the burden of, like, I have to act a certain way just because I'm a chancellor. I'm still the same person. I always say, say it to my friend, you know, I'm so proud of you. Now that you're trans. I'm still the same girl, you know? So that's why I want to tell people.
0: I have not met you in person, so I'm relying upon the internet here. Uh, so this may be unfair, but in several photographs that I've I've seen of you, uh, you're wearing sneakers.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so I, I don't know how much of that is um, a deliberate fashion statement, or it's actually just a very practical part of how you go about your daily work um, or if it's both of those things, and maybe it's also part of this personality you've described where you, you don't take yourself too seriously. Um, so, so the sneaker thing,
1: the sneaker thing, so it's actually kind of funny because part of it is as you age wearing sneakers, is a lot more comfortable. That's number one. And, and number two, I mean, at this point, like my husband, always say, right, everyone judges, so don't worry. <laughs> you know? So you're like, okay, you know, this outfit should go with high here, but I, uh, you know, sneakers is more comfortable. So the joke came from is when I interviewed for this job and I talked with some of the border regions, and then I say, well, you know, sometimes we're just going to wear sneakers. Gonna I can walk faster, go visit my student on campus. And they said, Dr. Lee, our advice is wear more sneakers. The student need to see you. The faculty and staff need to see you. So after they said that, I said, like, you know what? They're right. I mean, for times that may need to have a little bit more proper, tie. I have quite a few pair of high heels here. But I have a lot more sneakers collection. And it's actually um, it creates quite a attention now. A lot of my students, my staff notice it. They, they find it interesting, right? That the chancellor wears sneakers. And part of it, I want them to know this is the core of an urban university. We get things done. We're gonna wear comfortable shoes and get things done. Right. So I I love it and create a fashion sense, but more so it's really for personal comfort. But I, I'm happy to do that in commencement. I started to use wear sneakers and all my vice chancellors started to do it. They love it. And parents and students notice it. And it's becoming the talk of the town. It's, it's fun. <music>
0: My guest today has been Dr. Joanne Lee, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. I've really appreciated chatting with you.
1: I appreciate the opportunity, it. Thank you for the audience.
0: Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org that's the end of this week's show you can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at the website livesradioshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts find us on instagram and facebook at lives radio show the music playing in and playing out each week was created specially for the show by andrew bailey I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for more conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more.